This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. Dot, I assume Tom. It's been 50 years since the first ever, I would presume, Main Street adult film, Deep Throat, uh, was in theaters in the United States. And now we are commemorating with a digitally remastered version, uh, it, which will be screening in theaters again in Los Angeles and New York for the anniversary. Uh, how did this all come about to do a 4K restoration of a movie named after a political informant? Let me jump in and uh, set the record straight, just so you get your story straight. The informant was actually named after the film. The film came first. Um, our father was very proud of not so much of the film Deep Throat, but of uh, inventing the term Deep Throat, which uh, made it into the dictionary. So he was very proud of inventing a new word uh, because for him, you know, his backers didn't agree with the title, but he thought, no, this is going to be great. It was like very catchy. And if you're familiar with the story, the way he would put it is something happens deep down in her throat. So deep throat. And um, that's part was part of its popularity because it gave this short, catchy phrase to oral sex, okay, which people were very reluctant to talk about in the early 1970s, but now you could talk about the movie and then have the conversation about sex and sexuality. I, I have seen documentaries about your father's film, and the interesting aspect of it was, to put it in perspective of the film, because in the early 70s, adult films were still illegal in the United States. They were under obscenity laws, but you could make medical films. Mm -hmm. So this was in the guise of a medical film where a part of her anatomy was a genetic mutation that ended up in the back of her throat. <laughs> and this is why it was acceptable. Well, well, I'll, I'll go one further. Okay. There were what we call the white coders. And my father actually made one of those films. That, it was a, a genre because films had to be um, at that time when the way the laws were structured, it had to um, exhibit uh, socially redeeming qualities. And therefore, if you put somebody in a white coat and they could as pose as a doctor and talk about um, sexual deviance or a healthy sex life is based on blah, 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 then cut to the sex, then the film had uh, educational value. It was a healthy thing and might escape prosecution. Now, our father did not by any means expect Deep Throat to be a medical film, but he was just kind of making fun of that whole idea. And, you know, he used this idea of the uh, nurse fantasy, which a lot of men have where they're, they're helpless and the nurse comes and tends to them. So it was a comment on that idea of the, the white coat film, but not necessarily really a white coater itself. Now, depending on what version of the film you've seen, as Deep Throat got prosecuted and it was taken away from our father, he was not um, involved in it at that point, the uh, distributors tacked on um, this opening scroll, which is, you know, quotes from Sigmund Freud and so forth. And so, you know, if you've seen it on VHS or DVD in the past 30 years or so, 
you might see this long crawl or scroll that goes up and talks about, again, sexual deviance, blah, blah, blah. And that was a clear attempt to give it this socially redeeming value and maybe avoid prosecution. But in our version, we've cut that out because that wasn't part of the original film when it came out. So a 4K restoration of your father's film um, is now essentially the director's cut. It no longer has the uh, the scientific or the psychological implications as before. Well, well, our our efforts were to restore the film the way our father had intended it to be seen. So therefore, you know, by cutting out that that opening scroll. Also, um, some of the music had been changed over the years. Um, so we've restored that and so forth. And, um, you know, there have been versions of the film where they cleaned it up and removed all the grain and brightened up all the colors and so forth. And our, um, attempt was really to make it as close to the 35 millimeter film that showed at the World Theater in 1972 as we could. And, you know, I, I think we're pretty close to that. Uh, Crystal, you'd have an easier time because you are not junior in this regard. Uh, <laughs> so I'm the daughter a, of us, Right. So. But, you know, P, with, with a rather familiar Italian name that isn't, you know, specific to one town or one region, Crystal Diamano is easier to go, okay, that's just Crystal, versus your brother, Gerard, who's junior, that would have maybe had a more difficult time in school or, you know, having different, different types of questions asked of quote, maybe set visits or things of that sort. Well, yes and no. First off, it's Chris Starr and the last name is Damiano. Thank you. Um, Please forgive me for my mispronunciation. Your apology accepted. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody really didn't know that who our dad was. Some people did. And, you know, they, they would only assume, um, and my dad, I, I can say I was his little girl, so he kept me as protected as possible. And, you know, I can hold my own in, uh, you know, with my peers. So, you know, I easily deflected them and, um, you know, made them believe that, you know, I'm not only just the daughter of the king of porn. And, and Robin, you are an activist. You are... Uh, a person that is involved in the documentary, uh, or I'm sorry, on the film in this regard as part of the restoration and worked with, with the, uh, the principal making of the initial film. Uh, take us through the 1970s at the time with free speech advocacy, because it seems that we're reliving this and it seems that the 70s were a wilder time than now, but now we seem more hyper focused on this industry. Well, yes, and that's true. And let me just say that my mother was a pioneer in the adult film industry. Um, She was a First Amendment advocate, free speech um, crusader who took fights um, for uh, uh, our right to not have our choices censored all the way to the Supreme Court. Her name was Gloria Leonard. She was publisher of High Society magazine for 14 years and was... um, uh, appeared in a, about 30 adult films spanning probably 1975 to 1985. Um, so that being said, I was 12 years old and at the time and, and watched my mother fight the fight for anti-censorship on uh, something that she was very passionate about. Consequently, she's kind of instilled that passion in me. And to see now that 50 years later that books are being banned 
and just with all of the, it's, you know, it's de-evolution right before our eyes and it's like Groundhog Day all over again because here we are 50 years later and we're still combating the same issues. And most of them, of course, are, uh, you know, politically and uh, religiously motivated by those who would choose to subjugate women um, and then also our just basic innate desires and freedom to watch what we want to watch. And so that's why it's important that I've kind of teamed up with Team Damiano uh, to help them launch uh, the world tour because it is it is important. It's a, is as important, if not more now than ever. Is it interesting to to both camps that, that I'm speaking with today in the regard that We've seen censorship from the right 50 years ago, and now not only are we seeing censorship in some aspects from the right today, but we're also seeing censorship from the left, whereas classical liberalism would be like live and let live, very laissez-faire, you know, let, let the market dictate what the value is versus I don't agree with those people, so I'm going to try to censor them. And how is that dangerous now coming from both camps versus the notion of classical liberalism? where it's freedom of speech is protected or is protecting the speech that you disagree with, not the speech that you do disagree with. Correct. And, you know, that's what my mother always said. She said the First Amendment was was to protect, you know, views that were unpopular just as much as views that are popular. But I'll let Gerard speak to that. Well, I mean, I have an opinion. I'm sure we all have an opinion about this, but I think it's fair to say that these are very tricky times that we're living in. And, you know, I think culturally and, you know, as a species, we're at a point of evolution. So there are some, you know, some things that my father never would have have dreamed of this, you know, the transgender movement, um, this idea of gender fluidity is very progressive. And, you know, I think, I think a step in the right direction in terms of evolution, but at the same time, it's brought with it kind of a knee jerk reaction to that. The Me Too movement is a very important, um, a long overdue thing. I mean, women have been abused by men for centuries, forever. And so finally, you know, it's, it's getting to a critical mass where People are, are, are stopping to take notice. And, and um, unfortunately, again, it's caused this reaction to where people are afraid to talk about sex at all. So where when my father was making films, he had some very clear um, enemies, you know, on the right, who it was very clear to him. Um, they were trying to shut him down. They were trying to censor him. Um, he never would have dreamed that that also might be coming from the left because, you know, again, people have different ideas and, you know, we're first and foremost about freedom of expression, that it's important to be able to, to say anything. People will have their own, their opinions about what you say, but the important thing is that you're allowed to say it. You know, there's, there's a quote, um, that's been mis, you know, misquoted, um, you know, attributed to a lot of men, but it was actually a woman who said, um, I might not agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right mm-hmm. to say it. Your right to say it. So how do we get back to that at this point then? If both camps want to censor each other? Well, I think the most important thing is communication. And what made Deep Throat so important back in the day is that it got people talking that it became a topic of conversation. It got sex kind of out of the, you know, out of the closet and out onto the street is that now, you know, when it became so popular and crossed into the mainstream, <laughs> it was the thing to do. 
um, to go see Deep Throat. You weren't cool. You weren't hip if you didn't see it. So therefore, it became topic of conversation. And you can't talk about Deep Throat without talking about sex. And then it opens up a dialogue. The idea, you know, the absurd plot of Deep Throat, a woman with a clitoris in her throat, um, as, as ridiculous as that is, it got people talking about where the clitoris is to begin with. There was a lot of men that had no idea back in 1972 and still don't know. So it might as well be in the woman's throat. So it got people talking. And I think the important thing now, especially since we're going through this period of very rapid evolution, is that we communicate because there is miscommunication. And then people are against each other when really we're much more together than we are apart. And so we're hoping that just by bringing this film out, we're certain that not everybody's going to love it. Not everybody's going to want to see it. Some people question why we're even doing this, but we feel it's a part of history. The film itself should be preserved. Not everyone should see it. Not everybody wants to see it. If we were forcing people to watch the movie, that would be a crime, but we're not. We want people <laughs> who want to see it to be able to. We don't want it to be banned, okay? So that's really our focus is, um, you know, as Robin said, her mother was an activist, as was our father, and neither of them would have dreamt that 50 years later that we would have to pick up the mantle and keep pushing. You know, they thought it would have been done. My father in 1974 thought that pornography was was about to be extinct because once people stop prosecuting it, it no longer becomes important. He thought everybody would just evolve and get over it and then just enjoy more sexually free lives without the controversy. But that hasn't happened. You, know, you had mentioned the Me Too movement and the, the assumption that pornography would have gone away if it was no longer prosecuted. Uh, I had said, and this is loosely tied to the two, that the difference between pornography and mainstream media is that pornography is on the up and up about its behavior in front of the camera, while mainstream films pull all the shenanigans behind the scenes with the guise of some either sense of morality or moral superiority. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I can jump in and just... I want to represent my father's viewpoint because he spoke about this a lot and he was often asked about the casting couch. Okay. Is there, tell us about the casting couch in porn films. And he would just laugh and say, there is no casting couch. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be censored if I, if I use uh, uh, obscene words, which I would prefer because I'd like to quote my father directly. But what he said many different times, he said, look, for a woman to be in an adult film, she's going to get paid very little money. And sex is the job. You don't have to fuck anybody to get that job. Okay. But if a woman is going for um, a big national TV commercial where she's going to maybe do a half a day of work, but then get paid a huge amount of money. And if it airs, she's going to get residuals and she could get paid, you know, for years for that bit of work that she did. She would fuck anybody in the room to get that job. And there is a lot more of that idea of, you know, sexual impropriety in Hollywood, in legitimate films, because the sex, the, the actual sex in sex films is really open and, and um, upfront. You know, it's not, you know, my father never locked the door behind somebody or had him come meet him in his hotel room to cast for a film or anything like that. You know, he was, my father was very professional. 
he never like came on to his actresses or anything like that. He wasn't in the business to get laid. He was trying to make movies where there are people making movies that are just doing it to try to get laid. Uh, what, what you're quoting your father on reminds me of Marilyn Chambers and how she was the ivory snow lady before she got into the adult industry. You know, very, very much so. And, you know, um, they had, they became friends after and did some talk shows together and so forth and really spoke about, about this idea of, um, this double standard. And, you know, people ostracized the adult industry, but really, and Robin can tell you from her mother and Crystal and I can tell you from our father and I've worked in the adult industry and worked alongside my father is that there's a lot more honesty in adult films. You know, nobody's lying or, or it's all there, you know, to, to be involved in a sex film, you know, you have to be pretty out, upfront about things. Okay. So we call it, we call it balls out. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you, Robin. Um, so, you know, there, there's definitely that. Uh, take us back to the genesis of wanting to restore this as a 4k film. And doing this 4K restoration in, was it primarily because of uh, uh, preserving the quality because 35 millimeter or 8 millimeter is dissolving at this point? Was it a legacy thing in honoring your father? Was it the fact that, you know, the politics actually took the name of of the film and used it for a political informant, which (laughs) I'm surprised it was the inverse. Yeah. Okay. Well, are you asking me that question or are you yes. just answering no, it? A- no, I'm asking all, like, I'm, but all the, the surprise all is the above, one. all the above, the, the political, the political aspect, notwithstanding. I mean, we're not trying to make a political statement with this film. We feel that the film is important and that it's, it's historic. It certainly was a touchstone. Um, it's important to American culture. And so we feel that the film should be restored, um, simply because of that. And of course, you know, it's more personal for Chris Starr and I because it's our father's film. He would tell you it's not his best film, but certainly his most popular film. And so we feel that it's important to preserve it. And as I said, we're not forcing anybody to watch it. But if anybody wants to watch it, we want them to be able to see the best version available and, you know, the, a version that really represents the film that our father made in 1972 and, you know, is seen in the way that he intended for it to be seen. Um, so that's our, our motivation. And of course, anybody involved in film restoration or film um, preservation knows that, you know, film is, is, is a food product. Okay. It starts to decompose, you know, it's like a living thing which is why there are people that are very passionate about it. You know, I, I have, you know, a number of my father's films and negatives and film elements. And it's, it's like, like having plants. Okay. You got to water them. You got to take care of them. You got to make sure that they have sunlight and so forth. Or in this case, that they don't have sunlight, you know, but it's something that you have to constantly take care of. And no matter what you do, unless they're frozen in a dark vault, they are still slowly decomposing. And there is some romance to that. You know, the beauty of a rose is that as soon as you pick it, it starts to decompose. But in this case, we don't want these films to decompose. We want to at least preserve them, them digitally. And, um, you know, we just came back from, from Cannes where we saw the, um, the 50th anniversary um, 4K restoration of The Godfather. And uh, both of those films back in 1972 were, were um, spoken about in the same breath. And The Godfather is a, is a, beautiful film that should be preserved 
And so we're trying to do the same with Deep Throat, um, just so that future generations can see it and make up their own minds about it. And with the theatrical re-release, it's going to be at Roxy Cinema, Tribeca, The Slipper Room has three screenings, Museum of Sex, uh, all going through the month of June. Uh, is there going to be a 4K Blu-ray release? Uh, will there be DVD commentary on there? Um, you know, documentaries, things of that sort that would go along with it? Or is this just for the theatrical release and we haven't gotten that far in the 4K home uh, release? Well, we're starting with the theatrical release because we really feel that that's the most important thing right now. Because what made Deep Throat so important was, again, back in 1972, you didn't just watch it on a smartphone under the covers by yourself. It was a communal experience. You had to go to a theater and sit in public. And as it became popular and mainstream audiences were going out, maybe you'd see somebody you knew, or maybe there's a celebrity in the audience. I mean, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis was famously waited online in Times Square to go see Deep Throat. And so it's something for um, that's hard for younger people to even imagine today, going to see an adult film in in a communal setting. And so to commemorate the um, the premiere of the film, that's where we're starting. But in terms of um, of the Blu-ray, in terms of commentary and so forth, I've been working on a documentary film about my father for some years. I've um, shot a lot of interviews with people that were involved in the in the film. There's a lot of material for bonus features and commentary tracks and so forth for um, a Blu-ray release. So we're absolutely going to do that. But we don't want to start there because, again, now – Everything is streaming. Everything's on your phone, you know, and, and people are, are cranking out content where, you know, they don't even make a movie anymore. It's got to be a whole, you know, franchise that connects to a video game and with, uh, you know, five seasons on Netflix and all of that. So we're starting small. We just want to show the film the way our father showed the film 50 years ago. And then we'll look into um, the release on Blu-ray um, then, you know, eventually streaming, but we're not starting there. We want to start in the movie theater. Could you touch upon the communal aspect of this? Because, you know, in the old days, we'll, we'll go back to, to the rise of this. You know, there were the back alley bookstores and the brown bags. And then you actually had to go to a physical theater in the 70s to watch this with a crowd. And then home video made it easier to go into the back of the video store and pick it up. And now with the internet, it's in your pocket 24 hours a day. Um, the diff, the level of intrigue to physically go to a theater to watch a movie like this versus picking up your phone or tablet and just punching in a couple of letters. You know, how does that speak to the film itself in modern times? Um, well, we're hoping that people will come out and see it. Now, we've um, scheduled a number of events, which all feature a talkback after the show, a panel discussion. Um, we sometimes have an after party or even a cocktail party where it becomes more an event where people can mingle and again, talk about, watch the film together and talk about it. And so, you know, again, we're encouraging that first before, you know, we, we're just, um, making it available, you know, to download on your phone. Yeah. It, it's just interesting. The, the notion of going out to the crowd because it is celebrating the film 50 years later in the exact manner that it was released. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not going to have the controversy that it had 50 years ago. I mean, well, you know, I don't know. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> we hope. You yourself said it comes from both sides. So we hope that, that it's well received, you know, because again, times have changed. Our dad had a corny sense of humor, but you know, things have changed. So what was funny back in 1972 might considered 
be considered offensive in 2022? You know, we don't really know. And that's, you know, part of the, the excitement of this for us. You know, we don't know how it's going to go, to be honest. You know, we don't, we're not, we're not certain that, um, that America is ready to see this movie again. And on the contrary, we've had a much greater reception, you know, in Europe, in Canada, you know, abroad, um, in terms of showing this film where, you know, in our own hometown, you know, there was a lot of places that we're going to show and, and then said, well, no, it's, it's not, you know, in line with our brand or God knows what, you know, the kind of double speak that people say because people are afraid. Anything with the S word now, everybody's very um, jittery about talking about sex. And, you know, our father would really have a problem with that because, again, his take was that if you could talk about it and communicate and be free about it, it's not a big deal and you could move on. It's only when you you keep it a secret and it's it's um you know it's something bad or something you shouldn't do and now you you create this environment that's unhealthy around sex and sexuality understandable uh unfortunately we're running out of time i could talk to you guys about this for another hour and a half but uh tell us about the limited theatrical run that it's going to have through the month of june and what you will be expecting for it or at least be hopeful. <laughs> I don't want to monopolize the whole conversation, but so Robin, do you, can you talk on that or, or Chris Starr? Or, or I'm, I'm happy to. Robin? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, RC, you pretty much nailed it. We'll be uh, in New York for the month of June. We have an exhibit with some archives and memorabilia from the private collection of Gerard Damiano Sr., um, at the Museum of Sex on the 10th of June, we will be at the Roxy Cinema. That's very limited seating. I encourage anyone that's in town and listening to this uh, to run out and buy your tickets or uh, find us online at deepthroatfilm.com. On the 12th, we're doing three shows at the Slipper Room, and the first one will have a cocktail hour followed by the world premiere of the actual 4K restored version of the film. And then there'll be some go-go dancers and a DJ. Uh, and then there's a second show. I think the curtain is uh, 8.30, and that that will be followed by um, a burlesque show. The first show is going to have a small talkback se- session after the film. And then there'll be a midnight showing. Uh, VIP tickets are also available. Dami, uh, deepthroatfilm.com, damianofilms.com. Uh, and then you can go visit our website where you'll see the remainder of our tours. We'll be both on the East Coast and the West Coast. We'll be uh, in Europe. We'll be in Berlin. We'll be in Bologna. We'll be in Canada. We are international. <laughs> Wonderful. Congratulations on the restoration of the film, keeping your father's legacy alive keeping the free speech movement going uh, for both parties, whether, you know, if you're in agreement or disagreement and, and the right to defend free speech. Uh, one thing I will say to the people attending, just make sure you keep your hands to yourself <laughs> and uh, keep the area clean for everybody else. Let's put it, let's put it politely. Maybe we'll see you there, RC. Uh, you know, I'm in California, so it's not going to be in New York, but you might see me at one of the LA after parties. That's a possibility. Great. We'd love that. We would love that. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care you, and congratulations. Thanks. Bye.